0: Thinking back what you learned
1: in high school, in history class, what do you remember? Nothing. Yeah, nothing. I I can't recall anything that I learned in high school in history. I don't even remember history class. I don't remember history class. I remember math. I remember English. I remember biology. I remember chemistry. I, I guess it didn't resonate.
0: When I was in high school, both U.S. History 1 and 2, oddly enough, just focused on, oh, how wonderful we are and the accomplishments we had. No, oh, we became a country and did this and that. And even with the Civil War, it was more just about winning rather than what it was winning about and what was being fought for. If you think about you know, what you learned in history class in high school, what comes to mind?
1: Uh, (laughs) Sadly, history made me go to sleep. So, (laughs) so I'm like, I really don't know because I was napping a lot back in the day. Uh, Right now, all I can think is like about who is he? He was in my mind. He had the top hat. He was a president. There you go. There you go. Abraham Lincoln. I just remember him dying. That's sad. <laughs> That's sad. I remember they said it was in a theater. He was assassinated. It was crazy. I was just like... Hi, I'm Zoe. And I'm Chandi. And this is done by the Cloak.
0: What are we teaching children about America's past and history? How does it affect the future? And what exactly is American history?
1: Recently, through social media, people are starting to realize that there's a lot of information about American history that was missing or omitted in the classroom. It's all about perspective. Are we seeing it from one perspective or many? It allows people to reflect on what they've learned about American history and the aspects of it that they don't know anything about. When you don't learn about certain aspects of American history, it's hard to understand why things are the way they are. It's also hard to unlearn what you've been taught.
0: To really answer these questions, like what are we teaching kids today, how does it affect the future, we spoke to a historian and author Donald Jacobo. He's the author of Teaching White Supremacy. Hi, Donna. Good
2: morning. So,
0: yeah, how are you doing? How are you dealing with your newfound fame?
2: Fame? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> but I am grateful for all the events. I'm grateful that you are interested in this. It's pretty amazing. And I think for me and for, for Americans, my colleagues in Minnesota are planning what I've been calling a, quote, curricular revolution based on you know the impact of my book. They want to turn Minnesota into the mirror opposite Florida and bring the nation yeah. to decency and uh, intellectual consistency. They're working really hard. And I'm hoping that the political establishment, in which they have a lot of context, uh, responds generously and makes this happen. It could have a national impact. And of course, they're aiming for a national impact.
0: So first of all, you know, congratulations on your book, Teaching White Supremacy, America's Democratic Ordeal and Forging of Our National Identity. I mean, it's a great title. Can you tell us what the book is about?
2: If you want to understand Our current social crisis. There is no way to do so unless you read this book. It is the background for what we are currently going through. It explains why we are in this current crisis, why about somewhere between 30 and 40% of Americans are enduring what can't be called anything except a psychic crisis. There are lots of other factors going on in the gun culture and all that other material. However, what we are what many Americans are facing is a psychic crisis of immense proportions because this is what the book I think shows is that for all our history we have been promoting people of European descent as the only true American. Now conveniently for me and entirely by accident, textbooks form a kind of Diary over 200 years. The first ones that I know of came out around 1800. And of course, they have existed throughout our our history, or obviously right to this very day. And they form a kind of diary of what Americans have honored in their past and hoped for in their future. The whole purpose of these history textbooks is to show Americans what they're about, what their social meaning is, what their aims are, the institutions they formed, their purposes. You know, it's so convenient to have this. uh, But the reading of them proved simply astonishing and shocking to me. Even though as an American historian, I certainly know all the historiography of American history, particularly regarding uh, race relations, what we call race relations. But the fact of these textbooks, because they're aimed at children, for the most part, came to me as an overwhelming shock. I I, I guess this is a good time to explain sort of how this came about. Unlike some folks who accuse me of being an overt Marxist of one sort or another, I never intended to write this book. I never set out to write this. I certainly didn't set out to attack the United States. Or, or anyone in particular, uh, had nothing to do with it. I was doing an entirely different book. In fact, I spent at least half a year doing the research at the Mass Historical Society, at the Boston Athenaeum, and at the uh, Houghton Library at Harvard, which is their manuscript library, trying to assess the story of the public legacy of the anti-slavery movement and its impact on the creation of the modern civil rights movement. Well, I, I had spent many weeks at the Houghton Library reading the papers, 55 boxes of John J. Chapman's papers. And at the end of that, it was fascinating because he's a fascinating character. And maybe we'll get a chance to to look at him a little bit more carefully later on because he's very symbolic in, uh, about the issues that we're uh, concerned about. Anyway, at the end of that, I was kind of tired, and I knew that I had a mountain of more correspondence to go through, particularly uh, the family of William Lloyd Garrison, his children, and their children, all of which are the tens of thousands of letters. I thought, well, before I broach that, I think I'll go over <laughs> to the uh, Graduate School of Education at Harvard and go to their library and take out a few textbooks and see what they said about the anti-slavery movement. That's a nice break, and then I can get back into it. Well, I went there, I didn't know what to expect, and I was confronted by the Special Collections Department with this enormous collection of about 3,000 textbooks. Well, I was taken aback, I was shocked. I just wasn't expecting this. What am I gonna do? (laughs) <laughs> 3,000 textbooks. What am I going to do with this? Well, I, I gathered myself and I, I was a member, and these were all in these enormous movable uh, shelving units uh, electronically. You know, they they move, move back and forth. And they were just over six feet tall. I mean, just enormous, <laughs> uh, foreboding and intimidating collection of books. So I thought, well, since I'm looking at the impact of the anti-slavery movement, public memory of the anti-slavery movement. I'll start in 1832. That's a good place to start because it's the year after Garrison's Liberator started publishing. Well, as it turns out, the book I grabbed was written by Noah Webster uh, of of dictionary fame. I thought, wow, this ought to be really interesting. And it was, it was fascinating, but in no way that I had ever imagined. The textbooks, of which Webster's is, is was typical for the for the pre-Civil War period. Said nothing about the anti-slavery movement. And as I progressed through the books published prior to the Civil War, none of them did. Not one. I found this amazing. As it turns out, uh, this is because the way they at the way that time conceived of history was European exploration, European colonization, the revolution, the constitution, and then each successive presidential administration with every paragraph numbered. History took place within those boundaries and nowhere else there was no such thing as social history. This is the way that uh, history was presented. They certainly did discuss the slavery controversy, but only within the bounds of Congress, 1820 Compromise, 1850 Compromise, for those books that were published after 1850, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And they focused on politicians like Daniel Webster, Henry Clay, John C. Calhoun, that sort of thing. That's where history took place. Well, as I was reading through this collection, particularly beginning uh, with, with the works before the Civil War, I was immediately overwhelmed. Overwhelmed with the overt message of white supremacy. This was the whole point of these books. It was so obvious. Uh, and, and by the time you get to 1930, on the first page of one book, particular uh, textbook on the first page in capital letters it says the history of the white man i mean how, how much imagination do you need to figure out what's going on here uh, i mean and it was that obvious everywhere well i couldn't stop i had to keep going i was so enthralled i was so overtaken by the messages by the message that these textbooks were given Uh, that i couldn't stop and i i I remember sitting there saying well i've got this other book project what am i but i can't do it this is grabbing me by the throat and saying look at me uh there was a a kind of force overwhelmed me and so so i just kept going and i went through the entire collection the librarians there were just astonishingly helpful and so helpful. Just to, to illustrate, the uh, special collections was in the basement of, of the library, and the uh, Graduate School of Education decided they were going to expand the basement. And so they took it all out. Well, uh, they had to move, I, I couldn't go there anymore. So they gave me an office upstairs, and they brought all the books to me on carts. It was just astonishing. Well, th- then this project started to get a little personal in ways I had never imagined. I remember one day I was up on the second floor going through. They gave me a desk, nice place to work. I was finishing up one, one cart load. And then I, I looked back and they had brought up a whole new cart of books, both, I mean, two sides. I mean, there were about 50 books on <laughs> at least 50 books on each cart. In the middle of one of the carts, there was a, a slender book with a red spine. It was as if it was starting to pulse. And it was telling me, I'm not I wasn't hungry. I had plenty of coffee. <laughs> I hadn't lost my mind yet, but it seemed to be calling me for some reason. What is going on here? It was far enough away that I couldn't read the title on it. So it seemed to be calling me to grab, so what the hell? So I went back, pulled it out. It was my fifth grade social studies book in California. I couldn't believe what I was looking at. And of course, I discussed that book, um, Teaching White Supremacy, um, because uh, while it didn't have the kind of level of obnoxious and overt commentary about African-Americans and Native Americans, nevertheless, for a book that came out in the 1950s and was used until about 65 or so, it was clearly interested in preserving national unity amidst the Cold War. This was a central focus of of the book. But it, like the ones before the Civil War, never mentioned the anti-slavery movement, even though there had been lots written by that time. Nonetheless, it did say that Northerners did not believe that people should be bought and sold. That's all it said. Uh, What it did say, however, it was, It did acknowledge that there were slaves in the South, but it said, quote, who else would do the work, unquote, therefore justifying it to the reader. And of course, uh, they portrayed uh, Robert E. Lee as a national hero to help reforge national unity amidst the Cold War it became personal as well as uh, you know so professional and academic for me now after i completed my examination of of these uh, textbooks i thought well what do i do now i don't want to write a book about a bunch of bad books there there are already books like that in existence that there's nothing new there and it became immediately obvious to me that i had to explain why these books had the themes they did. Where did it come from? Thus, the first two chapters of the book lay out the terrain that the um, later chapters uh, sketch out. So uh, it became uh, abundantly clear that the books sustained this 300-year history of first American colonists and then Americans, defining true Americanness, true identity as white and people of European descent.
1: Yeah, I think Chandi and I have had this discussion in the past, which is just kind of the viewpoint right, of, of explaining American history or even just current American society today. Usually people when they think of an American, they're thinking of a white American. They're not mm-hmm. really including other people in that, even though the history of America clearly has, right. you know, it's quite diverse with different people and, and is much of American history is still more relevant even pre-colonization. you know colonization. There's, there's yeah. a lot of history in that time, but it's just not included. And I remember as a kid, textbooks, Kind of briefly going over Native Americans as saying, like, well, those people existed and they did this and they did that, but it made it seem as if they don't exist now. Right. And learning about slavery was like a sort of a minor, very small portion of what was taught when everything right. else was about presidents and about colonists and about, you know, World War, you know, one and, and, and Civil War and Revolutionary War. And, and those were the main things that we learned about. So, you know, for me, I didn't really. Learn much about people that looked like me, even though we were here for quite a long time.
2: Right. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Uh, In fact, I often uh, emphasize to people when I discuss this project, is that it's it it is important what's in the books. It's also important what isn't in the books because if it's not there, it isn't important. It can't be important if it isn't. Uh, And and this is being uh, fortified today. By virtue of the fact that even good textbooks that are inclusive, that do reflect the uh, history of the people who were here before Europeans came, do reflect the centrality of African Americans to the to American history. If the teacher doesn't teach it, what's the point? And this happens over and over and over again in Rhode Island at some schools all students ever get in terms of uh, the history of slavery is one paragraph. And I've had this verified by people who are from Rhode Island. One paragraph, that's it. The uh, Southern Poverty Law Center interviewed thousands of teachers and students, and they found out that there was such apprehension and lack of training, two go together, apprehension and lack of training, That many teachers, not all by any means, but many, many teachers, even if it's in the textbook, don't teach it. Skip it. Thus, the problems continue, and thus, the inability of so many Americans to understand the nation's history because it's not being given to them. Well,
1: Why why is it not
2: being taught? It's it's a good question, and there are a variety of reasons. One reason uh, is complete lack of training. Complete lack of training. In fact, it's it's getting to the point today uh, that so many teachers are fleeing the profession, or being chased out, depending on where you live. Like in Florida, are being chased out. That some districts are actually hiring people not only who've never had any training who haven't even ever been to college. Now earlier, and this is well documented and I mentioned this at, you know at the last chapter in, in the um, uh, epilogue, it has been painfully the case that in so many schools, the person given the responsibility for teaching quote social studies or American history is the gym coach. Again and again and again. It's just, it's been ubiquitous. What does that mean? What it means is that you have people responsible for teaching a particular subject matter who have no training in it, know nothing about it, and only know what is in their in the textbook in front of them. That's it.
1: I've had it happen to me twice one of them I just thought about it because it's been years we were it was a geography class he was of Polish descent and up until this point I mean I thought he was a great guy I had had his wife as a teacher for another class when I was like in second grade um and she was lovely but there was one thing he said that I think shocked the majority of the class and because once again he was of Polish descent and I obviously this is geography class so we're not really talking about, you know, American history. We're talking about world yeah. geography. But he said, I don't know why people blame me or other white people for slavery. Poland had nothing to do with it. I was in eighth grade. You know what I mean? It's just such an, it just came out of nowhere for him to even say that.
2: I think this and related uh, matters come up every time. You know, I I speak about this. And the problem is dismissed by the conservatives and and worse, as white guilt. Well, in part, this is a fiction. And in part, it's an excuse not to deal with this problem. Nazi Germany would modern Germans today discuss German history and not talk about Adolf Hitler and the Holocaust? I mean, come on. If they can deal with it, we can deal with it. Just as they must deal with it, we must deal with it. Nobody is blaming modern Americans for slavery in the South or in New England, for that matter, because slavery was a universal institution. In fact, there were individual slaves uh, in New England long after all the northern states abandoned slavery. I mean, New York didn't end slavery until 1827. Hello. It is a ubiquitous institution. Are we people who today, am I responsible for slavery? Of course not. I would be responsible, however, if I suppressed that part of our history. But because... A group of Americans, a large group of Americans, have defined identity, personal identity, and national identity as white. They feel under attack because they feel this genetic lineage all the way back to the beginning, because that's how they interpret history. That's how they interpret life. Therefore, they are the people from 200 years ago are the same. People today. They're all connected. Well, they're not. So their defense of themselves and their history requires them not to broach this subject because they don't want to take responsibility for it. Well, I don't either because I my mother's people were from Poland, my father's people were from Italy. It's got nothing to do with the legacy of the United States. It does have to do, however, with. American response to immigration, which has gone through violent periods, particularly in the 1920s, which produced the same rhetoric, fear of immigration, fear of, quote, replacement. Even the language is the same as what's occurring today. Exactly the same. And that's because then as now, there are groups of Americans who fear their lack of domination, or loss of domination, because that has always been the case. And in fact, there is reality behind this, because people of European descent are numerically becoming a smaller group. I mean, that is in fact a reality, an inescapable reality. It is happening. It doesn't (laughs) strike fear in my heart, In fact, (laughs) it makes life a lot more interesting, frankly, and would give American pretenses to, quote, liberty and justice for all. You know, what they used to say in the Pledge of Allegiance every morning, a chance to really blossom. But instead, among many Americans, it's creating the most intense fear, the most intense psychic crisis we've seen since the 1920s.
0: I mean, not to put the whole burden on you to talk about this whole national identity has come to be, but is that really the main reason for all of this suppression of what our history is being taught in school is inferiority
2: or fear? Well, it's it's both fear and uh, the desire to continue domination. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, Yeah. Uh, And and when, and it's this is all fortified by you know 200 years of of textbooks, which are designed to present American ideals, American institutions, American aims, and what everyone should treasure, if not worship, in American history. And when that history uh, focuses on whiteness. I mean, quite and it's not my interpretation, as I had indicated in that 1930 textbook. It's quite obvious. It's blatant, and so uh, we have this long-term legacy uh, of conceiving of ourselves and our country in this way, and it's now under under attack, literally, um, because of the change in the composition of America, which. For people like me, it's a good thing for people who have identified themselves, their nation and their world in terms of whiteness and people of European descent. It is a threat. So the answer is absolutely.
0: So people are just scared shitless. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I I always wondered if it kind of goes back to the idea of. Because, I mean, I don't necessarily hear it as much anymore, maybe older generations. Maybe some people still kind of think this way and don't understand why it's an issue. But the idea that, like we talked about before, the American, right? The standard American being a white person, meaning that this is a country for them. You know what I mean? Like this is built for them and for no one else or other people are just kind of here. Built
2: built by them for them. Right. Which is. Not both necessarily un, both yes. untrue, absolutely. Yes, yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so then that makes sense as to why that fear and that panic would would kind of take hold, and because then right. it's no longer for them, it's no, you know what I mean? It's
2: yeah, plus, and, and this is also uh, characteristic of American life, uh, it's less true than it used to be, but it is still quite true for many Americans. Your Americans of European descent have little or no contact with people who are not. Uh, it was especially true in the 19th century in the North, uh, where African-American population was relatively small compared to what it was in the South, and it was segregated into small areas. And so most white Americans, to use that term, rarely had interchanges with people of African descent. Weeks, years might go by they would never even see people of Africa, they only knew them by what they saw in newspapers. And you can imagine what that was like. Uh, Yeah. I mean, in newspapers and maybe off in the distance or what they heard from their parents or what they heard from uh, neighbors. They had little personal interaction. And that continues, I think, to a lot of Americans. And so what they're dealing with are simply You know, what what they've learned from their friends, from their parents, from um, comic books, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, It's just stereotypes. Not reality. In my case, when I was growing up, you know, under the age of 10, lived in Connecticut. I didn't grow up in a family that disparaged African-Americans. You know, it just it just never happened. And, And as it turns out, I had two friends, two brothers. I didn't even know they were African American. Even though if I saw them today, I, I it would be painfully obvious, uh, you know what they were. But I didn't. I didn't ask. I didn't. I just liked them. We played baseball together, and we were really good friends. It didn't. It didn't occur to me to care what race they were or what ethnicity they were. They were just my friends. Few people in American history have had that kind of experience. Uh, It's certainly more frequent now than it was, you know, even 50 years ago, which is why Barack Obama could have been elected president. But for that segment of the American populace, which is now taken over the Republican Party, it's a painful legacy. It's an intolerable, painful legacy.
1: So I was going to bring up the fact that in your book, you mention, you know, how the North rather than the South shaped racial identity in America.
2: Oh, uh, absolutely. And that—that that is one of the major themes of, of the book. Uh, it's an essential major theme. Chapter, The second chapter is devoted <laughs> to the father of white supremacy, John H. Van Every, um, and his influence both in the North and especially in the South. And of course, and when I when I mention this, I look out. If it's in an audience, you look out. You can see people nodding. The publishing industry was a northern phenomenon for most of our history. I mean, it's it was Boston, New York, and Chicago which dominated publishing. Uh, there were very few publishing houses in the South uh, for most until the 1920s. Very, very few. And uh, there was publishing newspapers, lots of newspapers, but uh, not publishing houses like uh, Harper and Row or something of that sort. No, that was a northern phenomenon. So they controlled what was being said. Uh, Pick a subject matter: literature, science, education, geography. It's all the books are written by northerners. All of them, the legal profession, northern dominated. Jim Crow was born in Boston. I mean, it doesn't, medicine, pick a subject matter, it is dominated by Northerners. They formed what people knew in terms of these textbooks. They formed what what was allowed, essentially allowed to be known. So even if slaves never existed in the South, these people would have created a group, which is exactly what happened. They created through their writing this fictional kind of person, which they then portrayed throughout the culture uh, as inferior and inept and in needing white control, northern responsibility. And this is this is so important because uh, I, you know I spent a lifetime listening to people blaming the South for segregation and slavery, when in fact, it is a national responsibility, not a regional one. You can't escape responsibility by blaming somebody else who's not nearby, right? This is the way it always has been, but it's not true. It's it's a complete lie. It's it's yet another fiction. This is a national responsibility, not a uh, local one.
0: Yeah, I'm sure the Southerners would like to, like to hear that. We're not the only ones.
1: Even my father, he didn't really, I think it was on the news a few weeks ago, um, when they were mentioning slavery in New Jersey. And, like, he just, he never really thought about it. Because he's from North Carolina, so, you know, as far as he's always, you know, been concerned, and, and from what he learned, you know, slavery in the South. And, um... We've even done historical tours, I think last year, was it last year, Chandi, when we did that historical tour in the city and we went to mm-hmm. um, yeah. Washington Square Park and, and certain places, you know, where it's pretty much just like a cemetery underneath the park. That's just, of, um, I guess, the neighborhood in New York that used to be uh, either free black people or slaves um, would live in that area and they, they were buried under and they just kind of like... You know, put concrete over it and made it into a park and, like, nobody knows. But Mm. doing, you know, a historical tour, you learn the prevalence of slavery even in the North way back in the day.
0: Yeah, I mean, even though it was a national phenomenon, it seems like the North was really good at, like, pushing the propaganda against them. If you think about, you know, what you learned in history class in high school... What comes to mind? 19th century American history, specifically the Civil War, but we also had some 18th century history, such as the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812.
2: Abraham Lincoln, slavery, Emancipation Proclamation,
0: Civil War, Hiroshima.
1: Japan. The other thing that, you know, you mention um, a bit in the book is like the different time periods that you kind of go through um, in terms of the important moments that are sort of written about or discussed in textbooks or that we all kind of know about that are sort of like um, major points throughout American history and identity that sort of promote I don't say promote white supremacy but I guess there's no other way to. But if you could talk about those like moments throughout American history that are sort of like seen as like key moments of like identity.
2: Well, in in terms of American culture and textbooks, you, you have a fairly consistent view of the history up until the Civil War. Then <laughs> I mean the cataclysm of the Civil War does indeed change everything. Uh, and suddenly, books and even authors who during the earlier period wrote either sparingly about the about slavery, and in some cases, uh, books that were published in the 1830s that condemned slavery, by the time they get to the 1840s, all that was removed, <laughs> or just removed. Uh, for the sake of, of national unity anyway um, once the Civil War concludes there is for a brief moment because of reconstruction which uh, historians like Eric Foner and uh, have called uh, you know the, the uh, second founding of America it's actually uh, more accurately the attempt at the second founding of America there is, A dramatic change. Suddenly, textbooks from about 1867 until the 1890s, suddenly there is a burst of interest in portraying African American, even real pictures, photographs of African Americans, uh, rather than caricatures. Of African-Americans, which would come out in some of their most uh, disgusting ways during the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. During this period, suddenly those people who are, are writing textbooks, well, like Thomas Wentworth Higginson, who was a colonel of the first South Carolina volunteers, who was an abolitionist, was a supporter of John Brown, uh, he's writing textbooks. This is sort of symbolic of the transformation that is attempted during this brief period of time, when uh, a democratic and inclusive attempt at creating, recreating America is taking place. It's Charles Carlton Coffin, who I, I had only briefly uh, been familiar with, was uh, for the time, uh, the North's most famous Civil War reporter. During this period of time, he writes endlessly, and he's enormously popular. And he writes uh, textbooks and a series of histories tracing the history of liberty from its European origins right through uh, to uh, Reconstruction. This is all. This is unprecedented. There is a desire for. He's got pages <laughs> of uh, full-page photographs of. Female abolitionists. This is I, I, this has never occurred before. Uh, there were forty copies of his books, forty, in the Boston Public Library during uh, the nineteenth century. All of them checked out all the time. He was immensely popular, uh, and this was, uh, you know, so symbolic of the attempt to re-found America. because of radical Reconstruction on the basis of full equality and inclusiveness. It dies. It's, It's dying before Reconstruction even ends and is really assassinated by the 1890s. Although a few books continue into the early 20th century, lost cause, quote, lost cause advocates had decided in the North that Reconstruction had been a terrible mistake, had been an experiment that failed. Giving power, and they said this, giving power to the ignorant was a gross error. And we're going to fix that by putting the people who deserve and earn power, white people, back in power. And that determined American Textbooks and American consciousness and American identity for the next hundred years. Created by Northerners, sustained, of course, by the former Confederates. Of course, they're going (laughs) to that's their whole point. But uh, in terms of what Americans learned, uh, 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 the political system and all, it is dominant and it is a repudiation of what was attempted during Reconstruction. I, I, it, th- this led me to wonder how a man like Frederick Douglass could have survived this, the end of slavery, the dramatic end of slavery, which, which obviously he and others would have been elated by. And then to see Reconstruction attempted, what a great, ab- positive, uh, unprecedented attempt in all of it. Before he died, thrown out. He must have been just devastated. I would have.
1: I'm devastated now, and the situation isn't nearly as
2: bad. (laughs) It's
1: there's so much about Reconstruction that I think, uh, especially when I was going to school as a kid, that I did not learn. I I knew that I learned the word, but that was about it. And I think it may have even been only ten years ago. That I even learned that there was a Freedmen's Bureau. Like, there's, there's just so many things that are not touched on, and it just sort of, just goes from Reconstruction. Okay, then we're going to head over to World War One.
2: Yeah, th- th- this is a, this is a good opportunity for me to focus on w- one individual, David Saville Muzzy. There was never anyone like him before, and never one, and <laughs> never one afterwards. He was a uh, very well-educated Columbia University professor, American history professor. He sold more textbooks than any other human being alive. The first one, his first edition, came out in 1911. They were still being used when I was in high school in the 1960s. Okay. For 50 years, his textbooks, and they're all different um, editions over time, dominated American teaching. He was from Massachusetts. He was from Lexington, it was a couple of towns, just a town over from, from me. He was from Lexington, Massachusetts. And he supported, in his textbooks, he supported the anti-slavery cause, no problem. Uh, that was, that was a, you know, slavery was wrong. He clearly uh, confessed. But when it came to Reconstruction, his true racial ideas came out. And again and again and again, he pounded the idea that giving power to the ignorant and inferior was a dramatic error, a a revolting turn of events that damaged America and its future. In the end, although he is a supporter of the anti-slavery movement, Even though he he opposed slavery, like so many Northerners, like so many abolitionists, they could oppose slavery, but also oppose african Americans, And he did. And he influenced generations of American students. A Northerner.
0: Uh, So clearly our textbooks are not the truth for the most part. So if you could go back to really understand one period in history for a week, what period would it be and why? Truly understand what was happening at that time.
2: Well, I, I think if you ask an historian uh, that question, uh, they're, they're inevitably going to answer about a period in which they've done the most work in. And so, well, there are lots of periods that, that I would be interested in, I think because so much of my work has been in the antebellum period, I would want to go back there uh, to actually see Wendell Phillips, William Lloyd Garrison, Frederick Douglass in action, Lydia Maria Child, uh, Lucretia Mott, to to actually see, not just to see them in textbooks and and, and biographies, but to see them in action, to see uh, the response that they got and to get. Uh, firsthand their true feelings, not just about slavery, not just about African-Americans, but American identity.
0: I mean, okay. so a follow up to that, because you are from the future. Would you tell them how 2023 American race relations are?
2: Yeah, I, I, I would spend my time because I would see this as an opportunity to further my own knowledge and my era's knowledge of the past. I, I wouldn't say anything about my, my time, but I would uh, spend all my time inquiring about their understanding of their time. Well, and you know th- there's clearly both positive and negative. A- after all, uh, we did elect Obama, Barack Obama twice to the presidency, signaling a dramatic change in American culture, which of course, then sparked the response. The election of the great white demagogue and what we're now dealing with because for so many americans that symbolized uh the change that was taking place that they could not tolerate and i have a feeling that many of these individuals uh took a more informal attitude towards voting i bet you a lot of them never voted before but i bet you they started voting after his election and the fact that he happened he got elected twice must have shocked the daylights out of them. Uh, in fact, the phrase that uh, Jill Lepore, a historian at, at Harvard and a New Yorker uh, 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 off uh, journalist, said was it tore a, fa- a hole in the fabric of time. That was their response to Barack Obama's election. Thus, the situation we're currently in. Yeah. You know, we talked about how
1: you know history is taught and how we understand American identity. What? Do you think can be done about the current situation? Obviously, we know what's going on in Florida. We know what's going on in Texas. (laughs) You mentioned Minnesota, but what do you think would be something we can do as a whole, as a nation, to kind of—I don't know—like how do we how do we
2: solve this problem (laughs) that we have? Well, no, no, it 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 always comes that it's not the obvious question. It it always comes up, and and it should. It's certainly uh, you know understandable. We, We want an answer. We know what the problem is. Now what do we do about it? This is a this is an extremely difficult one, and unfortunately there isn't one answer. There's not one thing we can do, uh, unless you call it organized, in which case that needs to be done, and it needs to be done uh, far more than than what's going on. But <clears throat> what you're doing is part of the answer. Having such sessions, uh, people like me writing about these things. That's another one. Defending libraries is another uh, one. Uh, You know, getting more reasonable people on school committees is essential. Uh, There's, and of course, electing individuals, appropriate individuals to office. Uh, is uh, essential. There, there, There isn't one thing. There's a multitude of things that we have to do, but we have to make our voices heard. We have to be in the public uh, realm, in the public debate. We have to participate. Uh, we can't allow the Tucker Carlson's to so dominate the, what, what we call it, sort of newsosphere. Why uh, newscasters are allowing that to happen, and it is, is it kind of baffling to me uh, when they know what the results have been and will be. So we need to be in that space. People who are listening to news, watching news, going to social media, however that's defined, need to see more than just the advocates of white supremacy. They need to see us. You know, in the end, this is a process. It is a much delayed process because we have, until recently, been forging our national character around these white supremacist principles. When you you have an issue that has had literally 300 years to develop, you aren't going to get rid of it in 10, 15, 20, or even 30 or 40 years. Uh, This is a process, an historical process, that people in the future, if there is a future, will look back on and see how we dealt with this issue. And we'll be recording uh, the history that we're creating in these kind of events. It's it's a problem, but it's not a problem that has, uh, you know, one-click solution. But I do think people like you are essential to the answer. Having this public debate, I think, is absolutely essential.
0: What's your hope 20 years from now, how our history is being taught?
2: I, I'm worried. Uh, I, I'm worried for all, all the reasons that y- y- you, know, you can guess. <clears throat> but I'm also worried because libraries are under attack. Now, when I say under attack, it's not necessarily by white supremacists. The very idea of a library is undergoing transformation. It used to be that librarians were in charge of libraries. They're not anymore. Information specialists, who don't know anything about libraries, are now in charge. Libraries are just housing information. Therefore, information specialists should dominate and run the show. What's happening is they're throwing books out. Literally, throwing books out and using the space uh to set up computer screens uh and discussion spaces for for people i gotta tell you this is a disaster schools school uh in the high school in my town in massachusetts disposed of its library a decade ago and replaced it with computer screens as if All the books you would need were freely available on a computer. It's not the case. Only a fraction of them are. And most of the ones you don't want people reading that are freely available. Uh, In fact, the Klan and other um, outfits are making John H. Van Every's books available free. Allows uh, those parents who are either unknowingly or knowingly Having their homeschooling based on out-of-date, not only out-of-date but racist textbooks. This is, this is a serious problem. But so but we are experiencing a complete reformulation of what of the definition of a library, and librarians who defend libraries are being threatened, not just threatened with losing their jobs, but they're getting death threats. I know one here in boston is receiving death threats for simply uh, advocating for inclusiveness simply defending inclusiveness and justice these are very difficult times
1: that's true i'd never even thought about it my high school basically had like a like a media information center there you go. And I was used to like, you know, because I went to high school in a different town than the town I actually lived in. And so I was used to like large libraries in my school, just sure. stacks and stacks of books. Yep. And going to this school, I was like, so there's computers and I really don't see any books. Yeah. And that was odd to me. They're like, oh, you can look up journals and articles. And I was like okay, that's great. But what I've also realized, because, you know, Chandi and I have continually do research for all of our episodes and a lot of the articles, right, that you would search for online. Well, you have to be, you know, you have to pay for them or you have to actually go to the library at a university or wherever to get access. those. Exactly. So they're not, they're not free. The library down the street may or may not have, you know, books for free. That would be relevant to what I'm researching so I can't get the information
2: exactly and and that which is free you don't want students reading
1: yeah exactly yeah. it's so basically yeah it's kind of it's restricting access to information that may actually be relevant right. um, and helpful so that is actually yeah that's a major problem
2: uh, and it's being fed by you know the the good aspects of of the web and the internet which clearly is a good thing. Uh, but it has some terrible side effects.
1: Yeah, it's like these these uh, like you know like you mentioned like KKK or other you know groups that are putting out information. They know that it's free and that people can right. access that easily.
2: Yeah, and, and you know we've we've gotten uh, everyone has has said this. We've gotten to the point where uh, a lot of people is uh, online live in these silos where they uh, only see certain things. And aren't exposed to you know a wider, more balanced, more balanced views, um, and it's just it's it's hardening the way what information people can get access to and know about. I, it's got some terrible side effects.
0: Yeah, sometimes it's about who's the loudest, and I yeah. wonder if that's also partly why your book is getting so much publicity. Is because well, one has such a interesting and in-your-face title, right? Teaching White Supremacy. (laughs) How did you come up with that?
2: (laughs) Well, (laughs) uh, A, uh, and obviously, I mean, this is what I was seeing. uh, But before I started writing, when I was thinking about how to structure all this, I had thought of the book as a textbook battle. In fact, that was the original title. You know, I, I, I developed the book far beyond that. But, but originally it was a textbook battle. You had the people advocating white supremacy and the people like during the reconstruction right afterwards opposing it. But as it turns out, that was such a small period of time. And there were so few <laughs> textbooks that there wasn't a battle here. Uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> you know, the white supremacists won from the beginning and you never had a chance of winning guys, sorry. So, there wasn't really a battle. So, I gave all that up. And in fact, uh, the book doesn't really the, the textbooks are the kind of thread that goes through or spinal cord that goes through the whole book, but it's much broader than that. I talk about all kinds of people and events and, and things that had nothing to do with textbooks. So, no, nevertheless, the teaching thing w- was important to me because it would if you think of teaching in terms of in- social instruction, Instructing the, the, the populace in all variety of ways, not just in the classroom, by any means, far from it. I mean, just throughout the culture. So, uh, what the textbooks were doing and what social leaders in all these fields, of, you know, medicine, education, law, science, all these fields, they were instructing the populace in what to believe and what to perceive as American identity and the human and, and different levels of humanity with people of European descent at the top and people of African descent at the bottom. I mean, this, this was first developed in the 18th century and, and continued throughout the 19th and, and well into the 20th century. What was going on was a kind of teaching, a social teaching at all levels, in all areas, and of course the the identity part of the title was um, second nature and obvious because that's what they were constructing. And what the book really is about, it's not, as I say in the introduction, this is not a book about a bunch of bad books. This is about the creation of identity, uh, and it's just that textbooks offered this. Uh, consistent stream of evidence just like it was a uh, an autobiography or a diary it is a diary of what Americans thought about America from 1800 to the present uh so it's just evidence you know it's funny i i, I never thought of it as in your face <laughs> but, but uh you know when i think about it it is what what I thought was in your face was the cover illustration. <laughs> that's in your face.
0: Oh yeah, that's a pretty cool. I don't know who, who designed that. I have to, but that's a pretty
2: oh, cool. Oh, I, I did. I mean, I picked this this image. Oh, because I found it in, in the Library of Congress and Library of Congress website. And uh, this image of Columbia, you know, she's carrying this book, right? And the image uh, when I first found it, it was so small you couldn't see. It just looked like a book. It could have been a Bible. It could have been a a code of of laws, right? And and, and the image is designed to show, you know, whiteness in America expanding across the continent, inevitably bringing America uh, and progress to the land. And you can't see it uh, in this image, but they're chasing off Native Americans. You know, they're in the way. They're in the way of progress. This is this is progress. She's carrying uh, the uh, telegraph line in one hand. You know, the internet of the 19th century. She's bringing progress and civilization to the unoccupied lands. Well, she has this book. So uh, the Library of Congress had uh, different uh, sizes of that image. The biggest one was over 100 megabytes. Uh, so I brought it up. And I thought, well, you know, she's carrying that book. I wonder what that book is. So <laughs> I opened it up and I nearly blew up because it said school book right on the cover. Seriously. I thought, this is the cover of for the book. There's nothing else that can equal that. <laughs> to kind of wrap up, I want to emphasize how deep these ideas penetrate into American culture. And I want to give one example. I had mentioned at the beginning of this that I had looked at uh, the papers of John J. Chapman. Chapman was, at the turn of the century, and into the beginning of the 20th century in particular, uh, a very important, very successful author, intellectual commentator. Uh, He even wrote a quite distinguished study of William Lloyd Garrison, uh, which, could, which I've read recently uh, or I read a couple of years ago and uh, could survive today. It's that, it's that well, that well conceived and, 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 and written. Uh, Chapman uh, was the descendant of uh, William, G, John Jay, William J. and the famous Boston abolitionist Maria Weston Chapman. He knew her, it was his grandmother, and he never gave up on his support for African-Americans and their civil rights. Never throughout his life to show how deep ideas of white supremacy penetrates in American culture. Someone like this, a descendant of abolitionists, a defender of African-Americans, nevertheless saw American society as Anglo-Saxon that immigration was threatening because of the deluge, what he saw as the deluge of Catholics. Now, he read Henry Ford, he read the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and he reacted in outrage and fear that Catholics, the Catholic Church in particular, was going to take over the United States, was gonna take over all the school, all the public schools, was going to even take over God-fear Harvard. Uh, He was a Harvard graduate, of course, uh, where he learned a lot of this stuff, and destroy American culture. And behind the Catholic Church, he argued, were were the Jews. Yeah, the Jews ran the Catholic Church.
1: He seems very uninformed. Uh.
2: Yeah, well, (laughs) unfortunately, he was well-informed by the misinformed. And he published these ideas in the newspapers of the Ku Klux Klan and got correspondence from around the country in support of what he had done. I know because I read it. He saved it, and it's in the Houghton Library. So even someone who defended African Americans throughout his life, even during this period of time, he opposed. Uh, the the policies at Harvard that separated uh, black and white students in, in, in the freshman dormitories. He damned Harvard for doing that. Nevertheless, his commitment to white supremacy was so deep, so profound, that he saw Catholics and Jews as a threat. Now, he grew up with Jewish children. He taught Jewish children. He had friends who were Jewish. At one point, he even claimed himself to be Jewish. Nevertheless, when he read Henry Ford's newspapers and the Protocols of Elders of Zion, the world changed, Anglo-Saxonism was under threat, and he published his fears and his warnings in the papers of the Ku Klux Klan. That's how deep, that's how profound white supremacy is in American culture.
1: What yeah. have reactions uh, been? Um, you know, as you've traveled and promoted your book and spoken about uh, the subject. Yeah, well,
2: uh, well, most mostly it's been uh, been very supportive. Um, I, I was warned uh, when this book, before the book came out, that quote, they're going to come after you," unquote. <laughs> but that hasn't happened. I'm just not important enough for, for that to anyone get worked up about. <laughs> uh, you know, I've I've gotten one nasty email. I mean, a really vile. Nasty, you know, all kinds of swear words and stuff. And like I said at the beginning, I got uh, accused of being a Marxist uh, at, 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 during one uh, talk. <laughs> uh, but other than that, it's um, it's been fairly positive, uh, which is encouraging. Now I, I don't know what people think after they leave the room, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> during the time, it, uh, the questions have been good. Um, uh, I I watch when I say things and see what the reaction is, and you can see people nodding their heads and and, and you know and saying yes. Uh, so I I think it's generally been written pretty good. So I don't know. I just keep at it, and I hope it has an influ- a bigger influence. Yeah. Thank you for
1: your work for this book
2: thank you so much for doing this I really appreciate
1: it and again thank you so much thank you we'd like to thank Donald for being on the show and for sharing his insights with us today
0: what's wrong with learning about the good and the bad there's nothing wrong with learning about the positive and negative aspects of history we can only learn from them if we don't learn history we are doomed to repeat it to learn more make sure you check out Donald's book, Teaching White Supremacy, America's Democratic Ordeal, and the Forging of Our National Identity at your local bookstore. You can also check out the link on our episode page on the website.
1: Thanks for listening to another episode of Bound by the Cloak. You can find us on social media. We are on X, Instagram, TikTok, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Good Pods, We're everywhere.
0: Until next time.
1: Peace.